CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. I want to kind of get the conversation rolling uh, and, and ask you both, Mick and Ben, um, since 2014, you know, big picture, when you think about what's happened in the city, city politics, um, what are the the three things that you feel like have changed the most um, since you guys first started the show. You go first. Oh, thanks, Ben. <laughs> what a great host. <laughs> you go first. Uh, let's see. Three things. What has actually changed? It's easier to say that things haven't changed that much. Um, what are the biggest things that have changed? I think... Um, the aura of invincibility around the mayor and the mayor's office is not the same as it once was for a lot of reasons that we can discuss if people are interested. But, um, you know, for most of the time I've been writing about city politics, it was just a given that uh, mayors are going to get their way in the city council and beyond. And um, that's still mostly true. But I think it's a lot tougher sledding now. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a whole new group of alder people in the city council who um, did not come up under Daly or the early ROM years. And so it's not necessarily automatic that they should just go along with everything that the mayor or his team puts on them and asks of them. The thinking is just different. Um, it's not always better, but I think it is helpful to have the expect the expectation has changed from the mayor's the mayor wants this so we just have to do it to a lot more questioning. Yeah. And I the uh, or the mayor's is is an excellent number. One. That's why I had you go first cuz I was like, "Oh, that was good." And I'll uh, bask in the glow <laughs> of that one. Uh, there's a left when we did this show, when we started the show in 2014, there was really no cohesive left. 
in the city of Chicago. Think of on a local level. Uh, and um, there is now. Cohesive? Well, okay, we'll get into that. Uh, well, they, they got a man elected mayor, so there's that. But, uh, uh, but think about it, Mick. When we'd have lefties come onto the show, you know, they were sort of like uh, isolated in many ways. And there weren't a whole... How many aldermen were there back in 2014 that I would say 50? Well, okay. <laughs> Cut me off, wise guy. Bef- bef- how many of that 50... See, this is why you brought me on. Were, <laughs> were um, of the leftist persuasion, would you say, in 2014? Wasn't it like Amea Pawar back then was like the flagship? Okay, and, and you, I wouldn't even call him a lefty. Flagship you know? <laughs> leftist on yeah, city council. Yeah, I know. And, and I Scott Wagesback back then, he was showing up to city council wearing a keffiyeh. I remember distinctly... 2013, 2014, one of my first times stepping foot into City Hall. I rode the elevator with Scott Wagespack up to the city council chambers. That man was wearing a keffiyeh. Wow, mouth open, speechless. Isn't it incredible to think about I, now? Well, I don't think Scott referred to himself as a, a left. No, he would never do and that. And so either. I think that the opposition, if you want to put it that way, to the, uh, to the machine or the, you know, whatever, the, the insiders, the opposition to the insiders... Um, they called themselves progressives. They didn't call themselves lefties. Yeah. And it was kind of a hodgepodge of, of people. And even getting people to admit that they were progressives and willing to join a caucus called the Progressive Caucus, which was pretty, you know, it was, it was left of the middle, but, you know, it was fairly centrist. It was just opposed to one-person rule yeah. and, and, you know, kind of mob mentality rule. So I would say what's changed is, like, what you're saying, Ben, it's not just that there's a left. It's just, like, there's a lot more people who are out as um, from, from a leftist kind of political persuasion rather than just, like, I'm against the machine. Absolutely. That's, um, and they have, there's a leftist ideology uh, and uh, like a move for more progressive forms of taxation. Uh, and that... Uh, I just was just did not exist when we did uh, when we started the show in 2014. I can't think of any alderman. Help me out, Mick. 2014, who was pushing for progressive taxation. I can't recall an alderman back then who was even championing it as an issue. Uh, yeah, that was before Carlos was elected. That, like there would be John Arena would be the progressive, and it was all. Like John Arena, of, I forgot about yeah, him. Yeah, John Arena was yeah, was a right. progressive, but they he was not pushing an issue like uh, a fair tax or an income tax or a head tax or corporate tax or anything like that. It just was not existent. So I would say the emergence of the left. We'll see where it goes. Um, yeah, they're they're mostly just trying to oppose or counter, provide some sort of minimal counterweight <laughs> to. Uh, Kind of the daily ROM coalition, yeah. really. Yeah, and the collapse of ROM. I would add that to the list. Because when we started this show, he was like the king of Chicago, you know. And so you could just center yourself. Like everything that the politics in Chicago was like in alignment one way or other with him. You're like against him or for him, or, or like a Maya, like trying to straddle both, a uh, few others like that. And, uh, and just, I mean, within a, how long did it take, Mick, 
almost two years uh, into our first Tuesday shows, I'm not saying there's a correlation, uh, before you could see Ron fall. And his second term, I always say, and you were, it was totally different than his first term. And uh, it was a completely different mayor, and he couldn't wait to get out of town. So those are, I would say those are the mm. three things. Uh, you know. Well, I'm curious. So I, um, I arrived in Chicago in 2013, immediately picked up the reader and started reading you guys. This is when, back in the day, where you guys were doing a lot of collaborations still, writing about tips. I mean, and, and other issues as well. I mean, it was really like a, uh, a primer on the city's politics. I, I remember like standing at bus stops just reading, you know, your latest updates about what was happening with TIFFs. Did, did the buses show up back then? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, uh, I, my first uh, place I lived in the city was in Lincoln Park, so, you know, the buses are always showing up yeah. there. Uh, but it's... As I started working in journalism here, you know, I was doing reporting that was nowhere near City Hall and never really had to um, interface with kind of higher levels of, of, of municipal government until some years later. But in general, I, I just get the sense that in, the, in this last decade, there's been this kind of PRification oh, yeah. of local government. Uh, and you've talked about transparency issues. Um, with uh, with the mayor's office recently, Mick. But I'm curious to to hear your thoughts about whether local officials have become, in your opinion, less accessible, less responsive. Um, I saw something today uh, on uh, you know what's left of Twitter about uh, the Chicago Police Department's PR operation going from four people to 48 people in the last 10 years. It's wow. like a 1,200% increase in, in communication staff. Um, I, um, yeah, and, at, and, and I was never the kind of person that you could like directly reach someone high up in city government, but it felt like you guys could, even working at the reader. Like you <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't, that's why we work so well. They returned his calls. I mean, aside from the from the issue of like you know the people there being a VIP section now in city council or whatever whatever they're doing with that, but like in general, it felt like government was closer, uh, even if it was consolidated in the hands of these more powerful mayors. Somehow, something about it felt like it was more accessible, more uh, easier to reach um, ten years ago. And your first guest was Joe Berrios on the show, which is like really kind of hard to wrap Actually, my mind he wasn't around. our that first. That is not guest, true. He was. But he was one of our. He may best, have been your I first show. Say. Yeah, he may yeah. have been your the first show that you attended. Yeah. For ten trivia points, Mick, I know you know the answers. We talked about it late today. Uh, answer, tell Maya who our first guests were, and then answer her question. Uh, yes, sir. Our <laughs> first guests uh, were Scott Wagaspeck, the aforementioned Scott Wagaspeck, mm. former alderman. Joe Moreno. Oh, wow. Uh, and? And <laughs> former alderman Richard Mel. Wow. Yeah. Uh, who we need to come back to because it was an incredible performance by Richard Mel uh, yes. that evening. It it's funny, Joe um, Moreno was actually the first poli Chicago politician I ever interviewed. And that was like back in like 2014. I, somebody gave me his number and I just called him and he just picked up the phone and was talking on the record. He was yelling on the record. <laughs> and he was just, he was just... 
calling people names. Like it, he didn't care who I was, or that I was you know bar- barely out of school and whatever. He was just like accessible. <laughs> well, to answer your question, I do. Th- I think you're right. I think um, there has been a a deliberate effort at every level of politics and government in this country, and it's you've seen it here go all the way down to our very most local representatives, alder people, um, where there are still a lot of still a, num- a lot of members of the city council um, I can text or call and they will respond and I can have an actual conversation with or an interview with. Uh, an, an unfiltered, unplanned interview is like a rarity these days. Uh, most of the time... You know, when you reach out to uh, an agency, government department and government agency, uh, an elected official, you're going to get a canned response. You're going to get a written, a carefully airbrushed written response. And um, I think it's I think it's poisonous for democracy. I think it's poisonous for journalism. I mean, who wants to read that crap? Um, It's most of the time it's bullshit. And uh, or it's an uh, like I said an airbrushed version of the truth, and um, you know I feel like I'm complicit in it because we, as reporters, we're first of all trying to get the truth, we're trying to get answers, but we also feel an obligation um, when we're identifying something going wrong to uh, to allow the person to respond. It's just fair play, and you know most of us are not going to prevent print something that is patently false, of course. But, you know, we do work in people's statements that sometimes just don't say very much at all mm. and or, or obfuscate the truth in some way. Um, and that's, I think, one of the downsides to this kind of PR, uh, PRification of um, communications with the public. So let's go back to, you know, the first mayor I dealt with as a journalist was, of course, the second daily. Didn't he threaten to shoot you at a press he conference? He did. He did. Uh, <laughs> you just can't get that kind of what? up close and raw personal Well, actually, Maya, I was going to say, he at least he held press conferences. Yeah. <laughs> this is a different... He did. Uh, yes. Richard M. Daly... Um, was having a, I'll tell the story very briefly so we can move on. Uh, he was having a press conference at City Hall about um, gun laws. The uh, city's ban on handguns had been challenged and was um, before the Supreme Court. And um, Daly took the occasion to try to, I guess, to try to pressure the Supreme Court to try to rail on them, or I don't know, I don't like they were going to listen to him and be swayed, I'm not sure, but there was a table full of guns that um, he said had been taken off the street by the Chicago Police Department, and one of them was a, uh, a long rifle with a bayonet on the end. So he... Um, He's talking about this, and I asked a question and said, uh, you know, there are a bunch of people who were just shot last night. How effective do you think the gun ban actually was? Maybe it wasn't that smart of a question, because whatever, we could, this is a whole other conversation for another time. But it was a legitimate question, and he answered by picking up the long gun with the bayonet and looking at me and saying, I'll tell you how effective it, it is. <laughs> 
I could put this gun right up your butt and fire off a couple of rounds. <laughs> and uh, he never answered the question. Yeah, it's a good duck and dodge. <laughs> I mean, is it better to have mayors that hold press conferences and say nothing or mayors that don't even hold press conferences at all and still say nothing? Well, daily held press conferences or open events almost every single day. And um, a lot of the times he would duck and dodge by an antic, not usually as outrageous as threatening a reporter, but um, he would do his dailyisms. People would start laughing because he was deemed inarticulate, but it was mostly an act in my opinion. I mean, I'm not saying he was articulate, mm -hmm. but he, uh, he rode that whole... I'm daily, a daily from Bridgeport thing and would go on these riffs that were very entertaining. And then you realize at the end that he had actually said very little. He hadn't answered the heart of the matter. Um, but sometimes he did. And he uh, was there and people shouted out questions. It wasn't always a limited forum. So I'm not, I'm not saying that it was perfect. I'm certainly not lifting up uh, Richie Daly as a model of transparency or open government by any means. But... Um, the guy was out there every single day, and um, I guess he did, felt like he didn't need to hide, but he took, he took questions from the press. Now, Ben, I'd like to get your take on this because I've heard Ben say many times one of the reasons Daly felt comfortable doing that was because, you know, after his first decade in office he didn't get a lot of pushback from a lot of reporters. Oh. Like, he, was, he was so ensconced and people were so comfortable with him yeah. as mayor that it was, I think in your view, it was way too friendly, right? Yeah, well, okay, now that's a, yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, me and the press. Um, yeah, Mick's heard me on this subject so many times, ranting and railing about baby boomer journalists, uh, and Maya's heard me a few times. But yeah, no, there was a culture in this city, um, in my humble opinion, uh, by and large, uh, that started to end with mixed generation uh, of just accepting whatever they were fed. This is my opinion. And um, so I was always on the outs of that, and um, I wasn't fed anything. Uh, I probably would have taken it had someone tried to feed it to me. But um, So yeah, I... I believe in the, after Harold died uh, and Gene Sawyer was run out of office, um, that there was a coalescing in the city of Chicago by all the powerful entities, including the media, to circle around daily, prop him up as our leader so that we would never have another Harold Washington again. And the press did its part. That's my, that's my belief. I read, read him every day. You were not even born yet, and you were in grammar school when I was reading them, okay? And uh, I just, I found it very uh, irritating. And uh, Ken Davis is here. God bless you, Kenny D. He was working for Daily uh, in, uh, in press operations, so you may have a different attitude about the press. You may have thought they were more hostile than I'm giving them credit for. Um, but that was my, that's my sense of things. And it's just, I saw it in all the big events, Mick. All, you just name any initiative uh, up until the parking meters. Up until the parking meters, okay? And even then, it was the reader. 
<laughs> two nerds at the reader, like how many months after the fact put it together? You know what yeah. I'm saying? About the, the two nerds at this table. You <laughs> yeah. 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 So I just, yeah, I feel that Chicago collectively, the powers that be in this city, decided after Harold was gone, no more Harold, no more empowered black community. We're going with Daly. He's our guy, and it's across the board, and everything followed. And um, so part of the reason he got away with babbling, in my humble opinion, is because, oh, well, people bought into it. They started spreading the myth that that babble actually meant something. That's my take on it. And um, But I still, having said that, I'll give him credit. He at least showed up every day (laughs) to babble, which... I mean, we've gone away from that completely. Does J.P. Pritzker have daily press events as governor? I don't think so. During the pandemic, he did. He did during the pandemic, yeah. He has has public events most days, I would say. I mean, all over the state, obviously, but yeah. When he meets the press, okay. Yeah, that are are open. I'm not sure Brandon does, that's for sure. So, I mean, sorry, did you want to respond? But I'm thinking like... This daily era that you guys sort of, uh, was the crucible from which you guys emerged, um, you know, this idea of like having like a 20-some year mayor, it just seems... Uh, Frightening. It seems crazy now yeah. to think that anybody uh, who I've known to be the mayor of Chicago would be here for 20 years. Uh, and then recently is an astute observer of local politics told me that it's probably going to be a, a, a one-term mayor situation yeah. kind of cycle for a while. Um, do you guys agree with that observation? Do you think that we're, we're set up for a cycle of, of a new mayor every four to eight years for the foreseeable future? I think we are in a, uh, a transition, a period of transition from um, kind of the second machine or the, I don't know, whatever, whatever, Richard M. Ritchie was uh, second, third wave of the machine to whatever we're going to next. And I don't think that's clear quite yet. I wouldn't write off um, Brandon as a one-term mayor. It's way too soon. Um, in, in politics, you know, three years is an eternity. One year is an eternity, let alone three years. Um, I think that everyone thought Rom was in there as long as he wanted, and then all of a sudden the Laquan McDonald uh, shooting, and the, most importantly, the video was released, and that changed everything for for Rom's prospects. Um, so you just don't know. But I do agree that I don't think it's clear quite yet if this um, CTU left coalition is kind of here to stay politically, or if something else is going to emerge, or I, I don't know. I think I think it remains to be seen. What do you what do you say? I'm with you. It's way too early to make any difference. Look, Brandon Johnson's had a rough week. I was ranting and railing at him in the show today. Mick was in the show and he was listening uh, with the uh, over Brighton uh, Park and the the decision to put Tent City on like a toxic filled waste site. I'm like, wow, who thought that was a good idea? And just imagine if if Mayor Lightfoot or Mayor Rahm had come up with that idea, you know. Um, so it's yeah. He, he, right now, it doesn't look good for Brandon, but he's a very personable guy. He's very smart. 
Uh, and uh, so, yeah, it's it's too early. I, I I see where your source is coming from with that observation, you know, because, like, Rahm was... Well, Rahm was saved by Obama, let's just be honest, and uh, the antipathy between black and Hispanic Chicago, so that saved him. You mean after his, his first First election, term, First yeah. re-election, yeah. yeah. I mean... One re-election. Yeah, he won re-election. I was shaking my head. But when he did, I'm like, man, this guy, unbelievable. And in retrospect, Obama carried him across. Remember the commercial? You were here for the commercials. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so now we're in this cycle. I, I thought Lori Lightfoot was going to win re-election. And then she just alienated so many people so foolishly, uh, particularly Willie Wilson, which I will never understand what, why she would bother to alienate Willie Wilson. She would be mayor, in my humble opinion, had she not done that. So I think it's too early to tell. Uh, but it, there is a definite change in the dynamics of Chicago politics. The city council uh, is much more assertive than it's than I've, when Mick and I teamed up, far more assertive uh, and uh, far more willing to speak out against the mayor on a number of issues. Dave Goetz and I do that, our show once a month where we do the city council bits, and it's just filled with aldermen challenging the mayor on parliamentary... It's kind of funny, actually. They've all memorized Robert's Rules of Order, and they're like, you know, trying to outmaneuver one another, and I don't recall that at all during the daily years. You know what I'm saying? Like, Well, daily didn't know Robert's Rules either, <laughs> but Ed Burke did and others on the floor did who were um, invested in, you know, siding with the mayor and his adv- advancing his yeah. agenda. So uh, it's interesting. Like, the, what, what, are, what is the sort of image of the, of the all-powerful sh- all, all Chicago mayor? What is that really built on? Is it because they are all-powerful or because they figure out how to make things look like they're all powerful. They, they get a few people together. They get a really um, effective team to give the impression that if you're not on board, then you're going to be left out and you're going to get nothing. Like everybody wants a winner. That's sort of the mentality okay. around you. So right? the way I, I'll put it both to both of you, and this is generally how when we have a conversation like this in the podcast, it goes. So the so-called housing crisis that we are facing right now in the city of Chicago and where you have uh, immigrants sleeping on the floors of police stations uh, and at the airport and the city apparently incapable of building any housing for them, which is kind of a staggering admission of ineptitude. How would it be if Richard J. Daly were the mayor? So I put this to a lot of people in the show. Richard J. Daly. What Richard would, J. Daly. Yeah, not Daddy Daly, not kid, not baby. Daddy Daly. You know, how would... This is a man, when black people moved to Chicago and he wanted to segregate them from white people, they built massive high-rise... Up and down uh, the Dan Ryan, and, and they got, got the federal government to pay to, for it. Yeah, I don't think Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis would be fucking with Richard J. Daly in this. Well, way. that's another issue, you know. Like, <laughs> I don't think that they this 
these I mean that's another yeah it's it, it's I don't think this would we wouldn't be facing this situation uh, not because Richard J Daly would provide housing for people but because I just don't think that this kind of uh, these kinds of politicized stunts uh, by you know go governors of other states would would be happening um so do you think they wouldn't do it because ideologically they have something in common with a, a conservative democratic mayor of chicago or because they feared something that he would do uh they probably i don't know they probably would have they obviously had a lot in common even though he might have been i mean they i guess they, they were all democrats back then all all these segregationists and you know the Chicago machine, I guess they were all Democrats, but uh, yeah i I think, and as far as the fear goes, I don't know, I don't know what kind of um I guess Daly did have a lot of pull uh, in the National Democratic Party, so um. And with Republicans. Yeah, and in, you're in right a way that, that Chicago mayors really don't yeah, now. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Rom, yeah. Rom sure didn't, like, yeah. despite his prodigious fundraising capacity for national Democrats. Well, and you're right. Texas was led, I believe, by Democrats at, um, through, at least at the, by the end of the 60s, right? So, but your, your question is yeah. about what, let's say that they were coming. Yeah, they were here. What would, what yeah. would, How what would, would he respond? Dick Daly do? Respond to a crisis, yes. He would um, basically strong arm uh, business community the unions everybody build the things build them now he would get a lot of people's jobs there would of be a lot of would. jobs Absolutely. and no show and jobs his name would be stamped on stamped every single everything. thing that went up mm. Um, mm -hmm. so he could get credit for yeah. it all and and even if the housing was built at the far edges of the city or someplace away from on a landfill he, yeah yeah <laughs> perhaps on a toxic, toxic super landfill. fun site yeah. all this, all this could be true at once <laughs> But I, yeah. I do believe that you're right. It would be seen as uh, this is happening. I may not like it. How can we quickly turn this into an advantage for me and the and the Democrat Absolutely. machine? And maybe that's the thing that would be different. It's like well, the point you keep hammering home every time I see you and hear you on the show is like this is being treated as a crisis when it should be looked at as an opportunity. And I imagine that a person with the political acumen of Daddy Daly would treat this as an opportunity. Absolutely. It is an opportunity. I, I mean, they not... treated the Great Migration as an opportunity. I mean, they ghettoized and segregated people coming up from the South, but the city did treat it as an opportunity. And they built a political machine there. That's yeah. right. And, and that, it got and a they, lot of black and, aldermen and elected. Black yes. wards re-elected uh, Richard J. Daley in his, most, his closest election. 63, most 63. vulnerable election. You would be doing election. everything possible to get these people to be naturalized as soon as possible so they could be loyal machine daily voters yeah. because those are people who you would lock down generations of families That's exactly for life. Right. So, this would be like... Yeah. So why are know. we doing that today? It makes sense to me. I mean... You heard uh, it here, everybody. <laughs> Benny J saying, bring back Richard, Richard J. Daly. You know, sometimes Help I wake up. It was a better world. <laughs> I mean, you know what? What about... What, what do you think Harold Washington would be doing? Same thing. I mean, I know everybody, like, you're, what, building housing? Yes, absolutely. The, uh, look, Harold, 
I don't think it's fair to Brandon Johnson to compare him to Harold Washington, who had about 20 years of life of his advantage over Brandon. I mean, like really lived experiences uh, across the board. And um, but when when the when the uh, 29 organized against Harold, the Verdoyak crew and the Burke crew. Let's not forget he was there, Chicago, with your forgetfulness, uh, your amnesia uh, about Ed Burke and what a master he is. Let's not forget the racism. Um, Harold uh, put on this big initiative to uh, rebuild sidewalks. I was going to say, you remember that, Mick? But you weren't even around. You were a baby. <laughs> I was in junior high. Yeah. Yes, you were. I said corrected. Uh, and um, so he was very much part of like a new deal it's like a different world, you know what I'm saying? It's we haven't had a massive public works project uh, in the city that benefited everybody. It's it's like I didn't in your lifetime. Think about it. They they sell in your lifetime and the lifetime of millennials and Z's. All you guys know are selling public assets. Think about it. They like oh we're gonna and they and they they push that on you like it's a great benefit. You know, we're going to give you a billion dollars, Chicago. We're going to sell all the parking meters for a billion dollars. They dropped it in Sneed's column. I remember they go, a billion dollars. Wow. Like, Chicago's are so dumb. Oh, billion dollars. It's worth $10 billion. Did anyone tell you that? Oh, I'm the Chicagoan. But the point is, uh, that's this generation that elected Brandon does not have roots in New Deal politics does not have roots in massive public. Mick, I'm really struggling to think of the last massive public works well, project. Okay, there were a couple attempted at least. Um, Daly, uh, that's what he wanted his Olympics to be, right? He well, wanted I, it to be a massive building project. I, I that, would not right, call that a public works project. Would, I'm just telling uh, you right. what his thinking fair enough, was. Fair enough, fair enough. Okay, we'll let I, it go. I'm not saying it would we'll have let it worked. Go. We'll I'm let not it saying go. it was a good idea. <laughs> I know how you feel about it. Uh, which that you, you were not a big fan of the Olympic proposal. I think uh, Daly's Olympic boondoggle was a phrase that was used often <laughs> in the reader in those days. Uh, but that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to build all this stuff. Um, he, that's why he bought the Michael Reese site. You know, it's like we're going to uh, get this infusion of dollars and we're going to put people to work building all kinds of stuff. Um, that was the thinking. And then uh, Rahm, in a much smaller way, thought that he was going to do um, an upgrade to the, uh, the water and sewer lines in Chicago. They um, dropped that one. They did drop it. Yeah. And obviously, we still have a massive problem uh, with the lead service lines. Yes. Rahm did spend a lot of money up upgrading, um, a lot of taxpayer money upgrading water and sewer lines that along the streets, not the connecting lines to people's homes, which are the big problem. But a lot of those were like a century old, and Rom raised the water and sewer rates and, and said this is going to be a pub, big public works thing. Again, we can debate. I mean, I think the work needed to be done. We can debate the implications of raising the water taxes and all that kind of stuff, well, but that's what he wanted to do. Well, and disturbing the mains, shaking up the grounds around them, and thereby dislodging more lead. Sure. Without replacing but, them, But listen, yeah. this was classic Rom. This is classic Rom. Rom, see, the, the brilliance of Rom, yes, I said that, the brilliance <laughs> of Rom as, a, as a, a politician was 
he would set an agenda with a checklist that he knew he could achieve. And did he actually solve... He wasn't interested in solving problems, fundamentally. He was interested in setting things out that looked like he was solving problems that he could check off. So the water and sewer line thing, we have an aging set of water and sewer lines under our streets. True, they need to be replaced. So Rom did some of that work. He presented it as a big public works problem. But did he actually get at the heart of the matter that our whole water delivery system, our whole sewer system has this antiquated technology in addition to the lead service lines, you know, we are not equipped for climate change here. I mean, we all see it when, whenever we have like even a little bit of snow, then the next day it's just pouring rain and all of our gutters back up. We don't have a system equipped for dealing with the weather we have now. And, you know, Rom wasn't going to spend the money or find the money to like look ahead 10 years, 20 years. That's just not the way he thought. He's sort of like, it's What's a thing cycle. that's an immediate deliverable? Right, and it's the it's the thinking of the the you know post Clinton. I, I mean, actually, it's kind of a rom a rom uh, yes, invention of mm-hmm. this kind of short term news cycle oriented political messaging and planning, um, which kind of brings me to another thing I wanted to get your thoughts on. Um, I think before we let some people ask some questions mm-hmm. as well is uh, just reflecting on the state of local journalism. Wow. Um, I've been thinking a lot lately about how, on, on one, from one perspective, I feel like we really have a very thriving local political ecosystem. I mean, there are way fewer employed journalists in the city than there were, you know, 15, 20 years ago, for sure. Um, a lot of the media, you know, infrastructure never really bounced back from the internet and the recession. But in general, I feel like Chicago is a pretty hopeful place to be a local journalist. There are, the last few years there have been a lot of there's been a lot of hiring. There's a lot more um, development in the nonprofit news sector. Uh, now we all work for nonprofits uh, now, but I um I've been trying to think about how do we do journalism about local government that doesn't just recycle the same formula, which is like, oh, the government's fucking up again. Like, here we go, another public official who made promises and then didn't deliver. Here's another government initiative that failed. Here's another pot of money that was misspent. Um, And the reason I'm thinking about it isn't because I don't think that that kind of accountability journalism isn't important. It is important. But I do feel like it contributes to a kind of undermining of public confidence in the possibility of government doing something right, in, in the state doing something right. Um, and I do think that the, the, the journalists have a hand in breeding a general cynicism about the possibility of of um, good things coming out of uh, local government. And the way it plays out is like, you know, we can do a billion stories about how it's, I don't know, CPS higher-ups that are messing things up, that are contracting with, you know, some shitty janitorial company that's not cleaning the schools, 
you know, that, that there, there's whatever, Forrest Claypool scandals and Barbara Byrne Bennett and all this other stuff, you know, it's, 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 it's not about the teachers doing wrong by the kids, it's about the structural, top of the power structure issues, and we're holding people accountable by pointing out all these problems. But I think for your regular person, at the end of the day, it contributes to a sense that like, Chicago public schools, I don't wanna send my kid there. You know, those are, those are bad schools, the whole system is messed up and people may not be getting into the nitty gritty of it being just somebody in the C-suite that's messing up. It's, it, how do, how do we, I don't know, how do we do public service, accountability, investigative reporting in the city about our local government that doesn't just make people feel depressed, cynicism, cynicism and depression and yeah, and, 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 and just a, a kind of, yeah doesn't undermine public trust in these institutions that we're reporting about. Well, uh, we had, <clears throat> just so you know, you've been institutionalized on the Ben Jarofsky show. This is now known as the Maya question. And uh, Mick was the first person who had to deal with it because Maya told me this. I heard this riff this morning uh, when we were preparing for the show. And I go, that's a great, that's a great observation. I'm going to use it. And then Maya goes, make sure I get credit for it. <laughs> so uh, it's now known as the Maya. Uh, it's an excellent point. Put, put your name on it like a Richard J. Daly. Yeah. <laughs> Built on a super fun site. <laughs> but uh, it is so true. And Mick and I were talking about this on the show today. There's a corrosive effect. You're absolutely correct. Of, uh, of just the way, and I put myself in this boat, the way journalists in Chicago, the way we approach the city, the way we approach our coverage of the city, the uh, cynicism that's embedded in so much of what journalists write, um, the, uh, the set of assumptions that they all too often bring to a topic, the prejudices that they won't acknowledge uh, but are embedded right there. You know, if you just read between the lines uh, and... Um, I really have a hard time I, after 40 years of reading newspapers just to <laughs> to read them anymore, you know, and um, so I'm with you. You really struck a nerve with me on this one, and I do believe that journalists in in this city of Chicago should really, I just, like, maybe go back and read their stories, you know, like, read what you wrote, and, and, and you know, and reflect upon it, uh, because... We're all, to a certain degree, in my humble opinion, we're all, to a certain degree, brainwashed by this Chicago attitude. Uh, and, and it's sort of like a negativity. Uh, I, I s s feel that I am, to a certain degree, am also captive to that. I don't think you are as much. Your generation isn't as bad as, as ours or mine. Mick, your thoughts about this? Well, I agree and I disagree. How's that for political answer um, I mean I yeah I get I get tired of reading the news too and I work in the news um, there as I was saying to Ben earlier there are many days uh, when I reach for the papers and thanks to my wife Romana we still get uh, uh, the Trib and the Sun Times delivered in print every day so when I actually reach for the actual paper there are a lot of days that I start with the sports section just because uh, it's it's more fun, and I want to read about something 
that I haven't been thinking about all day in my day job, and I'm sure a, a lot of other people either just avoid the news altogether or take breaks from it, which I don't think is unhealthy. On the other hand, I think the main reason why people are cynical with um, politics and government in Chicago and in this state is because of corrupt politicians and people feeding at the trough and not doing what they were supposed to do. I still believe in um, accountability journalism. I know you said you did too, Maya. I think, though, that we need to write about um, the rest of the world, too, and, and other things going on. My colleague Quinn Myers is here, um, fine reporter at Block Club. Quinn spends a good chunk of his time down at City Hall writing about the, uh, the, the weird and funny things that our elected officials do there. Um, and then he goes back to his beat in Wicker Park in Westtown, and uh, he writes stories about tough things happening there, but he also writes about important businesses that are opening and community leaders uh, trying to change things. And I think all those stories are really important. They're, um, you know, it's, it's obviously not our job to uh, put a positive spin on things that aren't working, and I constantly think we should be on the lookout for um, calling out people who should be doing better. But I just think we can offer a richer set of experiences and a richer set of images of all the things going on in our city at the same time. If not each of us as individuals, then collectively we could be doing that. And, and one other thing I'll throw out there is, you know, I was talking to um, another fellow journalist at a, at, a, at a party last weekend, and we were talking about the coverage of the Ed Burke trial, which is this monumental trial uh, going on right in front of our eyes. And, and we both came to the conclusion that while we found it very interesting and very important, we're, we're kind of political nerds, we follow this stuff closely, like that there's something missing. And it's not meant as a rap on the people covering the trial every day who are are doing really important work and have a tough job. Um, but it's that in, in the shift in journalism, and while we've gotten depleted in some ways, we've doubled down on things like investigations and political corruption coverage, but we're missing, we're missing who these people are and where are the stories. How did we get Ed Burke? I mean, what a cast of characters hangs out over at the Chicago City Council. You may like them, you may want to strangle them, but these people are, are really interesting. They are, um, I mean, one of the things I love back when I was, Ben and I were working together at The Reader is that, you know, because of the publication it was, you could really have fun with this. Even when you're writing about something very serious that affects a lot of people and taxpayers' money, you could kind of make fun of our older people because, my God, if you can't laugh at these people, you don't have a sense of humor. I mean, come on. This is, uh, this is it's, it's in very important, but it's also drama, and I just feel like we've kind of missed the, the color and the fun of all this, which is just as important in, uh, in sort of our morale and seeing the full picture as calling out the corruption and the ugly stuff, in my view. Yeah, and to kind of bring us back to where we started about the PRification of local government, I think that maybe part of the reason why we see a 1,200% expansion of Chicago Police Department's PR staff and 
uh, general um, transformation of local government offices into just, you know, new cycle-based kind of spin operations is, is when journalists call, it's so often, a, you know, a situation where, okay, we're about to punch you in the face, like, you got anything <laughs> to say about this? And so the, I, you know, if you think about local government as, as, as not just, you know, corrupt fat cats, but also just like people, this is like their job is to is to is to represent these institutions and to work there and the vast majority of government workers are not Ed Burke. Um, you know, I can understand how in, you just get into this mindset of like, okay, we got to manage the press. Like our job 24-7 is managing the narrative. And the more boring the narrative, the more sort of um, vague and, and, and general your answers are, that the, the, the less you say, essentially, the easier it is to move through that news cycle and move on to something else. And I, and I think, yeah, maybe you, maybe that you have a point there about there, there just, we're not, there's not enough life energy and fun happening in our local journalism, um, in our coverage of local institutions and local government. Um, and so in this space of just like everything being like, uh, so serious and face punchy, what we get is uh, a kind of journalism that's just dry and a drag and you don't even want to read it even though you write it. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm feeling, I, I, fe I think about this a lot too because my job currently is to, is, is, is really focused on writing about the local court system and it's like, Basically, there's two types of stories. There's people are fucking up or people aren't fucking up. And yeah. if you are doing a story about people not fucking up, you're doing a story about somebody doing their job, which isn't a story. And it's really just, I mean, it's, it's doing PR. And that's not our job either. So how can we do journalism that covers our basis of coverage when people are fucking up, but also, you know... Um, is there some kind of third space there where it's not puff pieces and it's not just PR and uncritical coverage of, you know, something that you get a press release about from the office of the chief judge? Um, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know. I, ha I haven't figured you it haven't out. You haven't figured it out because yeah. I don't think it exists. Uh, and uh, by the way, the chief judge was a guest on the first Tuesday. Just want to make that, uh, we're probably the only show that the chief judge ever Agreed, yeah. and that's all Maya's doing because he was so afraid of whatever she was going to write. In, uh, no, it was definitely all you're doing because you are friends with Mary Wisniewski. Oh, maybe, maybe it had something to do with it. <laughs> Clout. Uh, yeah, difficult. It was a Chicago way, Ben. Yeah, it was a Chicago way. I'm not even from Chicago. Uh, um, should we take some yeah. questions from people? Let's see Frank, we... you got a question? Mm -hmm. We got to hear it. Oh my goodness! Wow, it's like a tie. The least transparent. Uh, you well, Mick. We should answer that one about state's attorneys because you dealt with them much more than I did. I could not stand that office. Well, up until um, really up until Kim Fox, there was uh, who hasn't 
an imperfect record uh, herself. But up until Kim Fox, um, there was no notion that the, trans that the state's attorney's office should have any transparency. That just was not part of their thinking um, prior to Kim Fox coming in office. And obviously, that's one of the things that propelled her to victory and to taking over that office. Um, they just didn't think that. They're, I mean, listen, before her, um, uh, you know, it was Anita Alvarez. Before her was Richard Devine. And before him was uh, Richard Daly, I believe. Yes. And they had all they had all worked for one. Each successor worked for the person before them. And they all had the same mentality that their job was to lock up bad guys. Mm. And um, so the notion of... Uh, openness and discussion about reforms or too many people in jail. They just, they didn't, that was not, those were not questions that they contemplated. Um, and the notion that we could come in and, you know, examine their records, look at, um, in an aggregate way, look at data, seeing how people were sort of being moved en masse into the criminal justice system, whatever. They just, it just was a different world, Frank. Totally different yeah. world. Um, so that doesn't really answer your question, but I would say, like, if we're talking about most transparent, like, there's no state's attorney that is, is going to be in that conversation. Even uh, Kim Fox, who has taken some steps forward, for sure. Um, and uh, I got to say, right now at the moment, because this is what I'm reporting on, I, I got to say that, you know, Brandon Johnson does not have a good record at all on transparency. Um, whether you agree or disagree with his policies, their, uh, um, you know, just their responses to freedom of information requests, their sharing of information, they are extremely on the defensive. Um, I think that's partly because they feel like they're in a precarious place politically um, with some of the things that they're pushing with the migrant situation has, has, them, has had them on their heels from the beginning. It's a tough job. And, um, you know, all of us as, as residents of Chicago, journalists included, are rooting for this mayor to succeed. We are. We live here. We want the city to be better. Um, but we're also going to say that right now they're doing a bad job of sharing information and, frankly, complying with the law under, like, Open Records Act. So how does he compare with the others? It's, it's really apples and oranges. They had a little more time, again, before we give them a final grade. <laughs> let's, uh, let's see if they can get it together here. Um, but all of them have been problematic in their own ways. How's, oh, that, for, how's that for optimism? Yeah. Yeah. No, this well, I mean, worse. I think to be fair, too, uh, to n not to uh, necessarily the Johnson administration for their record on transparency, but to their FOIA operation, uh, I was recently at a party where I met the city's sole FOIA officer whose job is, this one person's job, is to handle all FOIA requests for the mayor's office. And this guy told me, he's been doing that job for a while, and this guy <laughs> told me that since Rom's time, it, it's gone from like, maybe 150 requests a year to like 800 requests a year. And he's still the only guy doing that job. And uh, I, after that, I mean, each of the different city departments has their own operation and their own, you know, their, their own one person that does this that sometimes is also the comms person. But um, 
that really put things in perspective for me because, I mean, and he said, like, you know, half of those 800 requests are, like, coming from Greg Pratt. But uh, <laughs> so he, he said that a lot of those are, like, regular monthly requests, so he's kind of ready for them, and it's, you know, it's like there's, like, a system set up to process them. But, uh, but in general, I was just completely, I was astounded that, there's, that this is a job done by one person. And, um, but I guess to your point about this mayor's commitment to transparency, it's like if that was a priority, you'd think they would budget at least for one other person. At well, least. <laughs> yeah, I don't believe that's the only person, actually, because, you know, I've been dealing with a FOIA officer who's not that person because the person's a different gender. Um, so <laughs> they, they do have some other people. But even if it's, if it's one, if it's 10, if it's 20, clearly they don't have enough for the volume. So if they had a commitment to openness, they would post the records online. Oh, we wouldn't yeah. have to FOIA them. <laughs> Any citizen should, could go there and get it. If they wanted to solve this problem, they would, and they, they don't think like that. Yeah. So um, I'm sim really sympathetic to the individual employees who have to yeah. deal with Greg Pratt and me and you <laughs> and whatever, but uh, I'm, I'm not sympathetic on the whole because this is the law, and they need to comply with the law, and all of you deserve these records, not just us journalists, you know, digging into stuff. Yeah. No, it's a complete and utter farce that we got. This is one of my favorite topics. I love it. The, 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 the concept of transparency in the city of Chicago, where it's never been transparent, uh, Frank, other than the fact that it's the only transparent thing that it's not transparent. And uh, the, the games they make reporters play, the forms they make you fill out, the letters. Uh, early on, I mean, Mick mastered this stuff. I, he, he took the city to court, He's, uh, and he won a case against them. And it's just... Absolutely, um, what it's like an insult to all of us that this stuff is just not presented, as Mick said, on the internet in a logical place where you could find it, where it's indexed. Uh, and the, f the fact that it's not is just um, their way of telling you, we're not going to give this to you uh, unless you, like, we're, we're going to make you walk across glass and then we may give it to you if a judge orders it that's and, right that's and it's right. you know these guys man they just got in here like i'm i'm it's, we're talking about brandon here but they're all they're all just passing through city hall except for maybe the person you were talking to was a lifer but think of all the the rom aids those yeah. hot shots that were such jerks you know and uh they're all gone they're not, not wrong ben let's not paint with too broad a brush okay all right so they're not all gone you mean yeah, they're, they're not, not all gone, gone. <laughs> some of them probably aren't can you all name gone. one that wasn't a jerk man? Yeah. all right uh uh i so, could i could all right but a couple <laughs> a couple quick points first of all just over the last week uh -huh. um brandon johnson's team decided rather than posting the environmental yes, assessment yes. online, oh the environmental assessment of the Brighton yes. Park site, rather than posting yes. it online, they actually sent out messages to <sighs> journalists saying, if you want this, you have to FOIA it. So that just like, they, it's obviously they wanted to keep track of who was looking at the document and or limit the public's, they want to slow down the dissemination of this information. So that's one quick example. One yes. that is more humorous in retrospect is that, Ben, you may remember this, late in uh, Richard M. Daly's tenure, he made an announcement that he was going to have a major transparency initiative. He's going to hold a press, he held a press conference for this. And when he got there, he said they had a whole new policy on FOIA, and everyone was very excited, and he said, our new policy oh, yeah, is yeah, that yeah. we're going to create a log online 
of every FOIA request that comes in so you can see what every journalist is asking for. And it was a way of basically fucking over journalists so that uh, everybody could see what everyone else's FOIA requests were. Which which I was fine with, whatever. If you're going to be transparent, open it all up. But that was his transparency. It was not about the workings of his government. It was about the workings of journalists. Okay, so here's my advice to all journalists, which they're free not to take, okay, because no one takes my advice. But this game where you're chasing a scoop and you're worried about getting a scoop, no one cares. No one cares. No one cares. Well, certainly not now, no. but listen. No I one see, The freaking... mentality in like 2010, 2009, no one it was cared totally different. Then. The only an editor. There's not one ordinary human being in the city of Chicago who knows that Ramana got the story before Dave did. No one knows that. Maybe Ramana's mother does because she bragged to her, and maybe Dave's mother knows because she's disappointed that Ramana scooped him. But nobody, it's nobody totally old, knows. Totally old nobody. school thinking. But it's, at the time, was, Daily announced this. You remember it? I remember. People, people ju- were, like, were crying and sobbing like they do. It's over. It's over. Everyone else is going to know. It's like, whatever. Nothing is more pathetic than journalists sobbing over the, like, the. Remember when when Lori, Ron and I talked about this so much, when Lori said, like, she's only going to honor. Uh, people of color first before white people. And then the journal, come on, Ramon, remember that one? Oh, this is an outrage. It was Who one, wants to it interview was, her anyway? It was one day. Had nothing to one say. day, she said, we're going to, we're our first sit down interviews for one day. She was going to prioritize, yes, one prioritize day. journalists of color. And there was so much. Yeah. Oh, really? I saw a yeah, no, there, there was I was laughing. Because it really, any self respecting journalist would have said, why am I rushing to get this interview? It's a 10-minute interview or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like, like at least Brandon gave us an hour. He came in at a promontory. He sat down. It would have been an hour and a half if Ronnie, I hope you're listening, Ronnie, didn't drag him <laughs> off the stage. So I was like, you know what I mean? It's like the manipulation of journalists. All right, everybody, line up. First is Ramana, then Maya. And then you get 10 minutes. There's the clock. I mean, what? come on. No. I'm sorry. I don't need this interview. That would be great. There you go. You want to solve the problem? Well, do right you, you remember when we cracked the code, Ben? We first started. Um, this was unusual at the time. In like 2009, 2010, I started foying copies of the mayor's daily schedules. Oh, yeah, yeah. And did, now this yeah. is commonplace. Everybody did it. But at the time, and I wasn't the first one, but I, I got the idea because I think um, Obama started posting visitors' laws yes. to the White House. And I was like, well, let's see who's visiting the mayor's office. And we had to foy for it and fight for it and all this. And they, when they finally gave it to me, I, I had to go there. I had like a struggle to carry it all out. It was like three boxes of paper oh God, documents yeah. to sift through. Um, but that was how we started going through it. We saw, oh, this is who the mayor's choosing to, which journalists the yeah, mayor's choosing they, to sit down with because it was like a deep, dark secret. And uh, I made you make the call. Remember that? Which call? Okay, so it's kind of embarrassing because we were, we got Rom's schedule, or you know, and, and uh, we were obsessively geek like Nick and Ben style, going through every name, looking them up on the internet. I'm like, God, this is this guy, this is this guy, writing little charts and everything. Uh, and then we started noticing that he was having sit downs with journalists, like people we knew, and we like oh. Rom was. 
Rom was, yeah. and it would be like off the record. He had like, did he call it o? OTR? Yeah, off the record. The, yeah. I'm like forever trying. What is OTR? You know, the dyslexia is kicking in and everything. And so, uh, uh, so this I'm is not investigative reporting. <laughs> My God, what does o, what could OTR possibly stand for? Quick, My God, quick, look it up on the internet. So uh, there was. I'm not going to name names, but there was one journalist, I'm beaming it to Mick, and I think he's going to pick up on it. Mm, the name has just been sent to you. Uh, and uh, he had a OTR with Rom at some like steakhouse or something. Uh, and it was like an hour, and it was in the schedule. Rom booked it in his schedule to meet with this guy. Uh, so we had to call the guy to see what happened. We? <laughs> <laughs> I did. Collector. I did make the call. You remember the call, yeah, Mick? I, I my I excuse: I was in New York City visiting my daughter, who lived in New York at the time. My youngest daughter. I go, Mick. I'm uh, in New York City. Uh, the cell phone's not working well. You yeah, call right. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I made the call, and the uh, the the reporter said, "I mean, Rom got in touch and wanted asked to have a sit down with yeah. me. Would you have turned it down?" And I said. No, I, I probably wouldn't have. I would have been curious and gone to the meeting, too. So it wasn't necessarily nefarious, but... I'd have written you know. about it. I would have definitely have written about sure, it. Sure, sure. Has everybody <laughs> read the this, this story? You can find it, I think, if the uh, reader's archives are still uh, functional, of um, the first time Rom ran for Congress and Ben's attempts to get an interview <laughs> with Rom. It's 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 a classic. Yeah, right. It's like um, it's it's better than the Frank Sinatra yeah, has a cold. Right. Uh, yeah. uh, but it's a classic profile of a character who um, does not participate in the reporting of the profile. Yeah. Um, but there, it's a uh, it's a great work, and you, you it will give you insight into uh, Ra- Ben's subsequent coverage, coverage of, of Rom. Rom yes. So, yeah. But I I, I just. I don't know. That's just me. I wouldn't have done it off the record. I'm not having an off the record meeting with the mayor of Chicago. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, nah, well, it's on the record. And so, you know, pretend there's a microphone. Well, that's why you're not getting invited to the steakhouse, man. Um, yeah, I did not get invited. Does anybody else here have a question? Is that a question? Oh, okay. You're in the front. Proactive. What? Like something's something good the city's done? Yeah. Off the, on their own without any prompting? Yeah. <laughs> wow, man. Can I get back to you? <laughs> Damn, proactive good? Without being prodded. Without being prodded? You know what? Maybe this is not. Uh, Maybe this is cheating because it's not about the city. But I feel like at the county government level, and I suppose this is actually more than 10 years ago now, but um, I think to this day, Tony Preckwinkle does not get enough credit for getting like a quarter million people insured in the county. What she did proactively was go and make sure that the Cook County was a direct recipient of the Obamacare money and that it wouldn't be routed through the state to get to Cook County. So she set up this whole county care thing through your typical 
in the same way that, you know, Richard M. Daley back in the day went to the Bush White House and got the green light to deregulate the CHA and knock down all this public housing. Um, essentially, she did all this lobbying to, to, to make sure that Cook County got the federal health care money directly, the, 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 which expedited the whole process and um, really expanded health insurance coverage for a lot of people in the city, uh, most of them in the city. Um, that's something that comes to mind for me. That's a good one. I mean, you know, there's initiatives that that uh, Brandon's done. Uh, you know, well, you're really uh, digging far back, yeah, man. But, uh, <laughs> all, I can't, all the way to May. I, 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 I just, uh, I mean, like the real significant thing. I got to think about it. I don't. I can't think of anything Aram did of any significance that benefited anybody except for some rich guy. I, I really can't. Mana, can you think of anything? No, I can't think of anything. I'll, I'll throw something out there under Rom. Um, uh, we're talking about transparency and data and FOIAs. They did create a data portal. There's a lot of information on there, including um, a crimes database and stuff like uh, you can track snow plowing, you can track uh, tree trimming requests. There's a lot of stuff up there, which is every one of those is um, potentially useful to somebody, uh, some of them probably more than others, business licenses, things like this, which in the past you would have had to FOIA or beg and scream the city to disclose, and now it's all in a data set. It's also a model for what could be done with this other stuff we're talking about. It shouldn't be limited to what's currently there. They should have all kinds of other data that is um, not just for, uh, you know, nerds who are diving into, you know, how many business, this type of business licenses were issued last month or whatever, but, you know, stuff that's actually useful to you and your neighborhood. Um, uh, there should be a, you know, if you, rec Quinn, the aforementioned Quinn wrote about a, uh, a long battle to get a stop sign in, um, in, I think it was in Wicker Park or West Town, um, Ukrainian Village. Um, these neighborhood names are very important to people there and don't you dare get them wrong. Um, but, you know, that's something that should be online. Let's, here's a request put in by the community to get a stop sign at a place where there was a high number of traffic accidents. That, you should be able to follow that along the way. Where does it stand? Instead of having to, um, you know, call your alder person a hundred times to get an answer or 311 or whatever. You know, the system is set up I'm going negative. The system is set up so that um, these people's jobs are useful, so they have continued to have power. And the more openness there is and the more you're able to follow it on your own and get quality information, the less power it is for these people. That's at least the way they think about it. Um, but the data part was good. Start with. I want to also just put a, a, a bigger picture positive spin on this. As you were talking, Mick, uh, I thought about this, and I think about it often, um, which is that for all of our complaining about delays in FOIA and meaningless press conferences and empty statements from public officials and, 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 and lack of transparency and what have you, it is remarkable how much we can know about what our local state, national governments do in this country. Like, you know, I don't, I don't know what's going on in the 
you know, Scandinavian social parad socialist paradises or whatever. But, but I would say that you, you, you your typical randomly picked country in, on, on this planet does not have this level of government transparency available to, you know, people and the press. And I'm, and I'm not, you know, a person that's typically uh, advancing narratives of American exceptionalism, but this is, this is probably one of the safest places on earth to be a journalist and Absolutely. one of the easiest in terms of the amount of information you can actually get. And so the kind of incremental, you know, uh, blips on the radar in terms of like, well, under this administration, they're taking longer to answer FOIAs and these people aren't having press conferences and what have you. On the whole, I still think that it's, it's um, we have a remarkable amount of access to our local government, uh, especially to information about what's happening, um, to records, uh, to meetings, and even if they do, you know, rope off portions of the city council gallery to have a VIP section or whatever, whatever it is that they're doing, um, I still think that it's um, the level of transparency uh, in, in government, especially at the local level uh, in this country and Illinois and in Chicago is, um, is something to be um, kind of marveled at. Um, and I think a lot of people who are journalists in this city working with a government and a legal system that's this transparent, like a lot of people wouldn't cut it in a lot of other places. I, I don't think I could be a journalist in another place. No. Um, like, that there's just no way that I would have that kind of tenacity to, to actually get information out of a, uh, a state apparatus that is not set up to share that. Can't argue with you on that point for certain. I can collapse. Pat, you got a question? Yeah, I got a few. <laughs> I was talking digitizing toys. You couldn't answer Frank's question. Man. I think that's interesting. That's a joke, I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I would, on behalf of all the civilians here tonight, I'd like to thank the three of you and all the other journalists in the room who are doing the work to keep us informed because it, it, it looks like fun, but I doubt it is all the time. Um, while I have the floor, I'd like to order another Guinness, too. But my question is, <laughs> uh, how did you all celebrate the anniversary of the parking meter deal yesterday? Oh, my God. <laughs> you know... Uh, well, I celebrate it tonight by giving five bucks to the uh, whatever, whoever owns the yeah, street parking system. Yeah, it, It's December 4th. Is that it? Yeah. I mean, I'm not, okay, I'm not comparing the two at all, but December 4th, in my mind, is the day Fred Hampton was murdered. And so I never thought of the parking meter deal uh, as December 4th. That's like, wow, you just blew my mind there. I didn't celebrate either of them. By the way, I didn't park yesterday. Yeah. I, didn't, I did not pay for parking <laughs> yesterday. Wow, December fourth, and damn, I did not know. Man, what year was it, Mick? I always screw up the year. Two thousand nine. Yeah, see, I always screw up the year. Damn. Um, Worst, by the way, in the history of Chicago. Oh no, we'll keep it to this century. Is that the worst deal in Chicago, in your humble opinion? It's the worst deal since I've been around covering it, for sure. Yeah. Do you think there's a worse one? Mm, we didn't get the Olympics. That would have been worse. So you don't no. think you wait? Do you, do you think this is worse than like getting rid of all public housing basically in the city? Well, I said that the twentieth. Well, the that's century, a different. Yeah. That's different. I mean, worst. I, I'm, I'm talking worst about government like a, move a ever, like a, a transaction. Yeah. Um, 
that's what I was yeah. alluding to. Uh, and, um, and it was also like the, the destruction of the public housing was like, I can't think of that as the last century, but neither here nor there, it's quibbling. Um, I think the parking meter in terms of what I was thinking of transactions, the worst, the absolute worst. Yes. Uh, we got a question over here, and then we'll take the person back there. Well, I'm, I am hesitant to speak uh, for Jeanette Taylor because she um, speaks for herself and she hasn't been listened to. And so I will always urge uh, my fellow lefties to listen to people like Jeanette Taylor. She's got a lot of wisdom. She's got a lot of smart. She's been on the front lines for a long time. And uh, I feel that's, to me, uh, you're alluding to a conversation I had with Jeanette on the show uh, about a week ago. To me, that was the number one takeaway. So I've since um, uh, Carlos Ramirez Rosa had his confrontation with Emma Mitz, and that blew up and exacerbated, no doubt, by Ray Lowe. I've had um, several guests come forward and ask to come on the show because they don't feel they're being listened to, and they're all black women. And I think that city of Chicago, like lefties, I love you dearly, but they're telling you something, and you're not listening to them. So before we get into the specifics of exactly what she's saying, you just like want people to vote for you, and then you just like don't listen to them. You know, you're not hearing them. And I feel that was really the strongest message that JT was putting out there. Uh, and then when she got specific about um, her attitude about how Brandon Johnson's administration has been governing in the, these, what is it, eight months? What is the hell? May? I can't remember. Yeah. I've lost track of that. In, the, in whatever amount period of time it is, that's the part of the story that really popped out. And so once again, <laughs> like the, to me, the, like, to some ways to me, the most important part was ignored, and that is when black women talk, they don't get listened to. And I don't know what the hell they got to do or say to get listened to. And I find it very discouraging. Uh, and then they get b belittled. Like Keisha Collins came on the show a week before JT did. She said the same freaking thing. But because she didn't go after Brandon specifically, no one listened to her. Delmarie Cobb came on the show a week before that, said the same thing. No one listened to her. And uh, so I don't know what it's going to take for... Liberals, lefties, people who are in a multiracial coalition to actually just listen to some of the people in the coalition. So I, that, to me, is the main takeaway from JT and that conversation. In terms of what she was saying about Brandon, she's not saying, well, my interpretation of what she said, if she were here, she would go, I'm sure she would say what she has to say. But this particular group was not ready. And I personally believe, looking at the record, that she's right. And it's not all lefties. Like, there's a lot of really capable, smart, pragmatic, 
lefties out there in the city of Chicago who get stuff done. But this particular group, the way they set it up, they're not ready. They, I'll say it a million times. They don't have a housing commissioner yet, and we're in the middle of a housing crisis. Not really a crisis, but we're calling it a crisis. Well, it's a crisis because we're like 100,000 units short of, of affordable... Uh, we're 100 units short of affordable housing. Yeah. Um, the migrant part, you can... I get what you're yeah. saying, that that's a manufacturing crisis. Yeah, it's a manufacturing crisis. Anyway, crisis. Carry, carry on, then. Yeah, on. so, and then, and, so, and then the other... The, 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 I don't believe, like, the machine was any... I think the city of Chicago, essentially, like, the basic stuff is just the same as it was under Rahm, just the same as it was under Lori. This is Ken Davis has heard me on this a million times. Just the same under the Daily. You're going to get on that train. It's going to work well. The worst time the trains ran was about the time when Daly threatened to shoot Mick. That was Remember how bad the trains were in the 206, 207, that era around the city? They were, they were bad. They arrived, though... But they were bad. They were bad, yeah. They, now, now they are not as bad, but they often don't arrive. So well, There's always something, to quote Rosanna, okay? You know? uh, but I think that essentially the city of Chicago runs about the same under every mayor I've lived under, and I've lived under a bunch of them. So it's nothing a machine does that like a lefty can't do. So I don't know what... I'm not privy. I'm not on the inside, so I have no idea like, why they decided to put a tent city in the, on a land that their own report said was soaked with toxins. I don't, I don't know. I think his report said it was acceptable. It's acceptable. Well, there's no acceptable level of mercury yeah. uh, for human exposure. Well, you're a real estate broker. I'm not going to buy any buildings from you, man. You got to be great I don't know, yeah. man. They, come on. <laughs> well, I think the issue here is that there was not widespread support for building a, uh, a refugee camp anywhere. And the fact that there was uh, previously a, a bunch of um, you know, environmental polluting uh, industries on that site that were never cleaned up for any purpose, and then all of a sudden it's deemed to be suitable for this one, I think the combination of factors has left people pretty suspicious of, of the of the process. Yeah. So, here's the here's the exact. And then, quote and then they had the uh, the report, and then it was like then you know a day or two later they said, oh, we cleaned it up, and um, you know it's, Come on, it man. just left a lot of skepticism. The report showed that the site contained mercury, arsenic, lead, and yeah, I took a picture of it. Manganese at levels requiring cleanup. Despite the concerns, the report said the site was still suitable for temporary residential use. I'm not buying a house on that. I don't know why some poor person has to live on it. And I'll tell you what, when they were putting, Mick heard me on this one today, when they were, when they were going to move General Irons down to the south east side of Chicago, the same movement people that helped elect Brandon rose up, went on hunger strikes, to prevent that from happening. And now suddenly we get this one sentence, the site was suitable for temporary residential use. Says who? Who well, said that? It's like a sentence and a paper. It, oh, it, don't it worry is, about it. It is true that I think because of, um, you know, more than a century of, of pollutants, that like there's no soil here that is totally clean. So that gentleman has, has a point. But, but, the, but the, you know, the counterpoint is that uh, generally, before work is done at a site, there is testing, and if remediation is required, 
you know, it takes a while. It's not like you send two guys in with a shovel and say, good to go, you know, let's build a camp. Fair enough. So I think it's just, again, I think it's a combination of the sequence. It's a sequence of events that's led a lot of people to... I just ask everybody on the left, if it's bad when Lori Lightfoot did it, if it's bad when Rom did it, if it's bad when Mayor Daley did it, how is it not bad if it happens under Brandon's watch? Why is the loyalty to the man, why is the loyalty not to the principle or the issue? It's not saying he's a bad human being or he's an evil person or I don't like him. He's a charming guy. He's been first Tuesday how many times? You know, twice. But... <laughs> <laughs> But come yeah, on, man, this is unacceptable, in my opinion. This actually, it makes me think about, um, maybe the point isn't that this movement wasn't ready for the fifth floor of City Hall. Um, it actually feels to me like if, if it, it was, a lot of people got involved because they got excited about uh, this candidate but they weren't necessarily really movement people. Because one of the things that real hardcore movement people will tell you, people who've like dedicated their whole lives to some kind of progressive community action, is that you really have to remain disciplined and open to pressure and criticism once you step into a position of power. Like if your campaign succeeds, then the next thing you have to prepare for is a lot of pressure, a lot of questions, and a lot of people who elected you holding you accountable. And what I've observed uh, in those last few months is a lot of defensiveness around these attempts at holding him accountable that just to me indicate that it, it's uh, it's it's a... Um, it's a it's a kind of uh, less about the lack of being prepared to to leave the city, which I'm not saying it's not true, but I just think that there's also something about how like if you really if you really have uh, dedicated yourself to community organizing, um, you know, in the city of Chicago, this is a place where this 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 kind of these these community organizing strategies were like really born and bred. You know that the next thing that happens if you do succeed, if you do get in the position of power, is, is the pressure. And um, to me, that's kind of the, the, the thing that I'm puzzled by, is like, you know, if, you're, if you were really surrounded and listen, listening to movement people, uh, you know, along the way, then this, this, this should come as no surprise. And I've, I'm kind of, I don't know, it's surprising that there's not a, a more... Um, Maybe it's kind of human, I don't know, to just to kind of uh, go inside your shell as soon as you're getting yelled at. But uh, Lori Lightfoot basically getting defensive and, and prickly as soon as people were yelling at her, that wasn't surprising because she wasn't a movement person. She, as you said, she wasn't at the forefront of anything ever. Yeah. Neither her nor Tony were ever at the forefront of anything, any kind of progressive issue. Um, so this is a corporate lawyer that steps into a public elected office for the first time ever and then just, yeah, uh, locks herself down as soon as people start yelling at her. But you would think that 
if this administration is made up of people who've been doing a lot of yelling and who've been part of that kind of work for a long time, that they knew that the next thing that would be coming is more is, is people yelling at them and they'd be more poised and prepared for it. So to me, I feel like that's kind of the, uh, the, the, the equally baffling as the fact that they don't seem to be listening to people who worked for the city forever and <laughs> you know, know yeah. how the place works. Um, but maybe we should take one last question. Uh, sir, you've had your hand this up for a while. A real minor question, but like back, going back to the, the public works idea, would Millennium Park count as like the only quote Oh, yeah, that's a good. Uh, I got to give him credit that's for that. That's a public works that, that, You know what? Thank you. That I I always say that too about daily. You know, say what you will about daily, but I love uh, you know the concerts. Uh, don't forget and the beans. <laughs> don't forget tearing up Mig's Field. That's a great oh, public yeah. works project. <laughs> No, but uh, yeah, I got to give him credit for Meg. Uh, uh, your TIF funds, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, I uh, just remind you. You know what always kills, kills me in my Lenin Park, though? I got to just say this. It's always, this really grinds me. So that's large. I mean, it's almost all built with uh, the little artifacts in there, you know, the, like the, the, the band shell were built with private money. But the park itself, the heavy duty, the, the paint, you know, building over the railroad tracks, all public money. And they got chisel and stone, all the, the rich people that gave them money. Where, where am I? I gave my money. Dave Glowatz gave money. <laughs> <laughs> the people of Chicago, you know what I mean? We paid for that freaking thing. That they make been, it there seem should like... have been a monument to the, the TIF program, Ben, and, yeah. and then you'd be there. <laughs> you'd be there looking up and... But, you know, they make you think like it was uh, Bruce Rauner. His name is on there, by the way. His Bruce Rauner. Yeah, remember that oh, name? I forgot about him. Bruce Rauner and Oprah Winfrey, their names are on there, among other people. Um, any closing thoughts about First Tuesdays, about closing down the space? Okay. For at least for a while. We leave open the possibility. You just don't like things ending. <laughs> you just, you just, you never, just get, never you're, say never. Never say yeah. never. When never. Ben launches his long gestating mayoral campaign, <laughs> there will be another first Tuesday. A free uh, bowl ticket for everyone. That's the that's the yeah. first plank of the platform. <laughs> Free Bulls season tickets. Yes, free. Uh, there anything but that, free. We paid for that arena. Hey. Uh, did we pay for Yes, through property. It was a property tax deal, yes. It was not TIF money, but yes, they got a property tax break. Mixed property taxes are higher because uh, Wirtz and Reinsdorf paid less. So there you go. Uh, Good to know. Yeah. So, yeah, That's so it's been a blast. Been a great time. You know? Yeah, we had a lot of good times up here. And um, most importantly, thanks to uh, Maya and Ben for inviting me on. And, and thanks to all of you. I know a lot of you, those I don't know, um, if you came out to a show when I was involved in this, if you didn't, whatever. And this, this whole concept is started because we wanted to have these kind of conversations, just talking politics in a bar. So, um, so here we are. And I do hope it continues in some fashion, although... I don't want to produce it either. And I have, I, I, I have to say this. I, I have to say this, uh, Maya and Mick. I would be remiss. A little shout-out to Timmy Tutton. That's I had right. my issues with him, okay? Uh, and uh, we had a bit of a falling out of sorts, but he was the one who got the ball rolling. So i got to give the man his credit. He got the ball rolling, and he set us up at the hideout. And, uh, yeah, and so I think it's fair to say uh, we're grateful for the time yeah. that the show was hosted there. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I think, in a, especially during the pandemic, um, things were 
we, we were able to remain afloat because of everything they set up to keep to keep doing it online. So, yeah, so uh, gotta give credit where credit's due. Shout out to um, the man. Yeah, and I just want to say thanks to everybody who who's steadily continued to come out, um, find us at various different venues across the city. Um, thank you to Frank for always being here. Uh, and um, yeah, this is the kind of thing that I think both uh, because the, the intimacy of these shows um, and the consistent uh, turnout of like the loyal fans, it's part of what makes Chicago uh, a beautiful place to be a journalist and, um, and uh, political observers because at the end of the day, you can really um, get close to a lot of the people um, you know, who make the city run and, 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 and sit next to them at a bar and ask them questions. Um, and um, it's uh, been a pleasure to provide people an opportunity to, to witness these conversations, to ask their own questions, um, and to feel a little closer to, um, to the people who make the city run. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, everybody. And thanks to the Nighthawk. Yeah. Let's give them a round of applause.